Welcome to the Probasco podcast. I am Claudia Williamson-Kramer, the Probasco chair here at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And today is September 28th, 2023. And I am joined by Professor Ramon De Janeiro. He is Professor Emeritus of Banking and Finance from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Thank you for joining us, Ray. It's a pleasure. And just for the record, it's Raymond. My parents were mean to me oh, okay. and spelled it wrong, but okay. that's okay. Raymond. Or Ray. Or Ray. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us. And today you're on campus because tonight you're going to have a talk, and it is titled Stakeholder Theory and ESG, Why Should We Care? So let's start there. Start explaining what stakeholder theory is, ESG, and obviously why we should care. Well, I'm going to start with ESG instead of stakeholder. That is, uh, stands for environmental, social, and governance. And the bottom line seems to be for most people, and this is a very nebulous definition here, um, using corporate resources for social means or social goals. And that can be good or that can be bad depending on how it's done. If you want to be an ESG investor, there are ways to do it that are more likely to accomplish your goals than other ones. And there are some that are actually counterproductive. So I'm going to try to give you some idea of how to tailor that behavior to achieve the goal that you as an individual want. Uh, the other stakeholder theory is a much larger okay. uh, concept. Uh, there's a quite a bit of overlap. It overlaps with the what I'm going to call the bad part of ESG, mm. the part that is um, misguided and counterproductive, uh, but it doesn't overlap with the part that can be done properly and correctly. Uh, that st stakeholder theory is the idea that a corporation or a business is accountable to anyone who's affected by that uh, institution's behavior. So in most cases, a capitalist society would say, you know, a corporation is supposed to make as much money as it can legally possible and give it to its shareholders. It's their money. It's not supposed to change the world. It's supposed to make iPhones at a, that work at a good price, and competition is going to force them to do that. Um, stakeholder theory says, well, no, you can't. That's That's not accurate. We need to consider other people who might be affected by this. Uh, that's fine in one sense, but the, but it's very unworkable because when you define it as anything, anyone that is affected by a corporate's actions, then you get a lot of conflicts. Well, it seems in some sense to be so broad that it can include everybody, and then you have a collective action problem in some sense. Are you trying to, who are you trying to appease, and then all those individuals could have competing interests. So let's back up for a second. So stakeholder theory, then we can contrast that with shareholder theory, which was just the kind of more straightforward idea that a corporation, a public corporation, main goal is to maximize shareholder wealth. Is that correct? Yes. The way that uh, a business should operate is to make something so good okay. that people are willing to give you their hard-earned money mm -hmm. in exchange for what you make. Okay. So then where do you see, so I want to come back to incorporating ESG, but where do you see some of the shift away from shareholder more into this idea of stakeholder theory? When do you think that started happening 
either in the public perspective or in the academic literature or both? It's not a new idea. Okay, that's um, my impression it, it as well. It goes back to at least the 1930s hmm. where uh, people said, you know, hey, there are third-party effects, uh, pollution in a river or something like that, okay. that um, aren't necessarily handled properly within the shareholder framework. And actually, they are handled properly in the shareholder wealth maximization framework uh, through prudent government regulation. If you're polluting a river, we force you to turn that pollution back inside your company, clean up the river, or pay somebody that's harmed by that, whatever okay. work out. Uh, so that that's a solved problem. We already know how to mm. handle that. Uh, but massive layoffs, for example, are very disruptive. Uh, the auto industry went through some terrible times in the past. They might be going through some again, mm. depending on how things go, as industries change, creative destruction. There were right. no airline jobs in 1903, and now it's a huge industry. On uh, the other hand, passenger trains uh, virtually disappeared in most of the country. Okay, so then how do we, when we're thinking about then the stakeholders, how sh is a firm expected to take in that into consideration if their company's being outcompeted or the industry's dying off, like you said, with passenger trains, then what what are the kind of mechanisms or the operational guidelines that you go by if you're trying to incorporate these other stakeholders? I, I think you face a serious problem that, that you can't afford to address okay. uh, until you address the question of whether you're going to be able to stay in business. Mm. Uh, you know, I can't make my employees better off if I can't make payroll in the first place. Correct. Yeah. You know, I can't make a better iPhone or Droid if I can't hire workers that can do the job now. So uh, I have to stay in business before I can do any of these other things. The real issue with stakeholder theory is, well, there's several, but I, I think it's just shielding bad managers from uh, accountability. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, if, if we uh, are accountable to uh, our employees, mm -hmm. who we have to make happy and pay them a lot, and also our customers who want better products at lower prices, mm -hmm. Uh, those are in conflict. If I'm paying my employees a lot, then I'm going to have to charge a higher price. And, and we can extend that to all of the other share or stakeholders. So there's fundamental conflicts okay. there, and I don't know who to favor. Usually right. the stakeholders say, well, favor the one that I favor, right. but that, that <laughs> the world doesn't work that way. Okay, so then... Oh, let me back up. Yes, the absolutely. reason that uh, shields people from accountability is if I miss my sales targets, I can say, well, it's true I missed my sales targets. I didn't produce the good product at a lower price, but I did give people raise. You can't fire me. Interesting. Okay. And so I always have an out. So you see this as creating some room for more um, agency issues, as we would say, in, in the academic term, or as you said, for managers to not be held as accountable for their standards or, or whoever, you know, they're reporting to, whatever that might look like, because then they can turn around and say, but I did this good thing for this other group. Right. Okay. If I am if I have 50 things that I'm supposed to do and I get 25 of them right, uh, well, you know, that's probably good enough. And the other 25 people, well, I'll get them next time. Uh, and, and it end up never getting fired. I always have an excuse. Uh, maybe I'm just a bad manager and should be replaced. Mm. The other issue with 
shareholder theory or shareholder theory versus stakeholder theory is uh, the issue of property rights. And without wanting to get too deep in the academic weeds, can you do what you want with your property mm -hmm. or can I tell you what you need to do with your property? I think that's an excellent point because even when you mentioned the environmental issue like polluting, it's a pro it's fundamentally a property rights issue. Yes. And that's where you discuss where government has stepped in and say you have violated this right and now you have to pay for it. So again, it does fundamentally come back to a property rights issue and that resonates I think well with me and I think it can help people to see this difference if you want to maybe elaborate on that a little bit more. Um, in terms of the shareholder versus stakeholder and whose rights are we maximizing or acknowledging? Mm -hmm. uh, well, a shareholder is someone who has contributed money to the company okay. and bought a stake in the company. Uh, that is an equity claim. It's, he gets the residual claim. He didn't make a loan. Mm -hmm. There's no promise he's going to get his money back. Okay. Um, a stakeholder is, by definition, and it's fairly long, but it boils down to anyone who's affected by the company's behavior. And that's a very broad group. I mean, you've got the employees, you've got the customers, you've got the suppliers, you've got the advertisers, you've got the universities that could hire your people if you laid them off. Right. You've got the universities who are counting on you hiring their students. Uh, you pay taxes so that the state budget is affected. So uh, anything that gets a, you know, the roads are stakeholders. And pretty soon, you know, look, I make tacos. How am I supposed to worry about the roads? It's right. just, and so stakeholder theory doesn't give me any priority on who I'm supposed to please. And whichever one I happen to please doing what I want to do is the one I'm going to say, well, that was what I was trying to do and you can't fire me. So would you say that over time, so if we look throughout history, that there has been this shift more recently toward focusing on stakeholder theory. So it's not a new idea, but do you think that firms and corporations today kind of espouse these views that they're maximizing stakeholder instead of shareholder wealth? Or is this something that's more in the public perception and that firms actually, their day-to-day -day operations, their quarterly returns, the way that they talk back to their investors is really they're still maximizing shareholder wealth? I think that depends on the company. There okay. are definitely companies that are uh, doing much more. They're leaning far more toward the stakeholder model. Okay. And some of them are actively pushing it. The Chamber of Converse, Commerce uh, surprised a lot of people by coming out in favor of this, okay. uh, which I think is a terrible mistake. I mean, the Chamber of Commerce should not be involved in that, mm. in my view. Mm -hmm. So uh, that I think that was a mistake. Uh, it, the... A serious danger is that what sounds really good turns out to not be very good. And, and the example I'll give in my talk is uh, corporatism, which okay. was made famous or infamous by Benito Mussolini, the fascist dictator of Italy, uh, before and during World War or parts of World War II. Uh, where, it, I mean, it just sounds wonderful. I mean, right. we're going to get uh, the owners of the company and the employees of the company and the government, and we'll all get together and we'll collectively decide mm -hmm. how we're going to run this company, which turns out to mean who can bribe the government <laughs> best. Yeah. Right. And I, I understand that, you know, those charges can be labeled against the capitalist society, too. You can take a purely capitalist uh, country, and we still 
have incidents of people bribing right. public figures and all that sort of thing. The difference is that in a corporatist society, government is actively supposed to be involved in this process. And I don't see that as a profitable way to go. So can we, with some of the, and maybe it's too soon to tell, but do we, are there any evidence, is there any evidence, say, in the, in the academic research that's kind of coming out to say the companies who are following more of the stakeholder theory are not as successful, they're not satisfying their customers as well, or they're not able to raise as much fund. Do we have any evidence, or maybe they are better managed, or, you know, can we pinpoint any kind of cause and effect from this somewhat mm -hmm. recent shift? Uh, I want to say two things, if I can remember them. I'll say the first one right now, and, and that is there is some evidence that companies that take stake out a political position okay. one way or the other, and the only one I have data for is on the left. Okay. Companies that stake out a position on the left tend to do worse than countries, companies that stay neutral. I think we will find that that is also true for companies that lean right. If okay. you lean right, you're probably not gonna do as well as companies that stay neutral. If, okay. you, if you make tacos, make tacos. Right. Okay, um, but I don't have data on, on that part. The um, other thing I wanted to say has gotten away from me for the moment. We'll okay. come back to it. Well, I will give an anecdote to what you were just describing uh, with the recent kind of Bud Light scandal and um, their customers at least thought they were pushing somewhat of a, a leftist position on the recent social media campaign and there in the, became a boycott and a big push to not purchase and drink Bud Light. So then recently I read that their um, CEO came out and said that they've done some uh, customer focus groups. They've talked to 17,000 different customers. And what their customers really want them to focus and talk about is beer. And so I think that supports exactly what you were saying yeah. is they don't want a company to necessarily take these political positions. Sometimes it's really just about I want to have a taco or I want to have a beer and I don't want to have these other things in my face. And, and that reminds me of the second thing that I okay, wanted good. to say. Uh, a very common and valid criticism that sh stakeholder advocates claim is this. Look, if you cleaned up the river mm -hmm. or took this particular social position, then people would like your company better. They'd buy your products. You could charge more. You'd make more money. And that is true for some com companies. I, I, I think that's probably true for Starbucks, for example. Um, but if it's true for your company, then shareholder value gets you to the same oh, spot. Yeah, absolutely. You should be doing those things to make your company more valuable. If it is making it more valuable. If it is making it more valuable. That's value, a very good point. That point that stakeholders make is absolutely valid, but shareholder value people come back and say, well, yes, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. That's maximizing shareholder value. That's very different from doing something that detracts mm. from the company's mission. Okay. Yes, I think that that helps. I think that does help to clarify. So now let's 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 pull in the ESG issues, and um, again, that's in my opinion, that's somewhat broad. You've got environmental, social, and governance. Governance is, in some sense, also all-encompassing, and so maybe you can just shed light into when people say ESG, what most people mean and what that's really covering and then how that's affecting the way we see either companies investing or people investing in certain companies. Uh, first of all, I, I can tell you that 
the E is way more important okay. That's than my anything impression. else. Yeah, the S is kind of important, okay. and nobody cares about the G. <laughs> um, if you care about the G, it's to get the E right. I so, gotcha. for example, I really care about carbon output, okay. somebody says. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. So then you might say, well, that's really a governance issue. The guy in charge mm -hmm. of, say, ExxonMobil mm -hmm. uh, is not really an energy guy. I mean, he's a management guy. He doesn't know much about energy. Uh, he's doing okay, but not paying okay. attention to some of these things that are going on, and he could fix. So that's a governance issue. You need to get that guy out and replace him with somebody who knows what he's doing so that he will fix this problem in the E, e, in the e part. realm. Hmm. So G is a means to an end. Every, most people care about the environmental aspects okay. first, and then a distant second, but not zero, yeah. is the social stuff. So what would be an example of a social issue that, that a would A social issue could up? be something like um, support, donating to Black Lives Matter okay. or a homeless shelter or something like that. Okay, so maybe where we tend to see more nonprofits would that be an accurate description, or is it more specific? Than I'm that? not sure where you're going. So it so right companies are for profit. We're talking about for profit the way we invest. Um, so maybe the social issues are more in terms of does a company support some of nonprofit missions, or is it more like specific to certain types of of the social issues that nonprofits didn't support, like a homeless shelter or something that a nonprofit exists to support um, racial, racial issues or gender issues? Or is it, so is it like along those lines or is it more of just like, does a for-profit company donate to nonprofit company, uh, nonprofit businesses or entities? I'm, I had not thought of that before and I am struggling to come up with a case where corporate donations to for-profit organizations at least get the headlines that others make. Okay. Now, if, if you, the closest I can come up with would be something like um, ExxonMobil, come back to Exxon. I think they have more patents on clean energy hmm. than any other okay. organization in the world. I mean, they're very brilliant people. They know their business. Mm -hmm. Who's going to know more about how to clean them up than yeah, them. I yeah. mean, we certainly don't. Right. The marketing people in, you know, Nabisco certainly don't know more than they do about cleaning things up. So, you know, they might do something like this. They might say, well, uh, down the road, for better or for worse, we're going to have a lot of electric cars out there and we need more and better battery storage. Okay. So we will donate to somebody who's doing research Oh. in a better battery because current battery technology is very dirty mm. with the lithium mining mm -hmm. mostly done in China, which mm -hmm. has a very poor environmental record. Uh, and you move, it's a ridiculously large number, something like 500,000 pounds or tons or whatever. It's a huge number for one battery of, wow. of dirt. It's a, it's a ridiculously large number. And, and there's so many zeros that I really shouldn't quote it without looking <laughs> it up, but it's a lot of zeros okay. at the end of it. Okay, okay. So, well, as you indicated, mostly it's about the E. So we can talk about, um, and maybe you can provide some examples of companies that have embraced stakeholder theory with the focus on environmental issues. So can either 
describe a couple of those companies or just a couple ways in which in investors have changed or the companies themselves have um, promoted certain types of issues? I think the real issue here that I want to mention is uh, a place where ESG investors make a mistake. Okay. Um, and, and they actually can hurt their, the cause they claim to hmm. support. So let's, let's take an example of somebody who picks a company and says, ah, this company is dirty. I don't want to buy their shares. I'm going to sell all their shares. I'm going to do whatever I can to, to make them suffer. And they find another company and they say, ah, this company is clean. I'm going to buy their shares. I'm going to do everything I can to support them. Okay. Now, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen here is the, the person is going to do everything they can to drive down the price of Exxon Mobil mm -hmm. shares and drive up the price of Spotify. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, how much pollution can Spotify emit? It's just, you know, not very much. Right. And, and the pure empirical fact of the matter is that if Spotify were to go 100% carbon neutral, they would provide less of a boost than if Exxon could cut its uh, carbon output by 1%. Right. It's the nature of the business. And, and so ESG investors who do what lots of ESG investors do, which is, I don't want to be a part of that, I'm going to punish them, are actually hurting the environment. They're starving mm. the company of funds that keeps them from cleaning things up. They can't afford to buy those oil booms that are going to restrict an oil spill. They can't afford to put in the carbon scrubbers on the coal, you know. But okay. Spotify can use, uh, you know, 20% less electricity. Uh, who cares compared right. to what Exxon puts That's a on. very interesting perspective, yes. I think, the, I think you're correct in a couple of things. People aren't thinking about long-term consequences, right? They see the immediate as kind of the, the immediate versus long-run effect idea. And then the other point that you brought up, which I found interesting, was the changes in price. And so then how that would affect – so your investment can affect the stock price in both companies, and then that can affect um, other people's willingness to purchase, which right, can then all have, again, a longer-term effect. So I think that that's, a, that's an excellent point. And if what you're really wanting a company that is causing harm to the environment to clean up, providing them funds, maybe the means to do that. Mm -hmm. And that is being not discussed. I think you're correct in that is an overlooked, um, you know, scenario that needs to be highlighted. So I think mm -hmm. that's an excellent point. Well, I'd, I'd like to uh, claim it for myself, but it's a paper by someone from Yale and someone from Boston College <laughs> who have recently written a paper on that and and found that. So I, I have to give them credit, but unfortunately their names <laughs> escape okay. me right now. Um, we can add a, a link and add a link to yeah, that I have to the paper. Yeah. That'd be great. Okay, so any other um, kind of points that you want our listeners to think about when they hear ESG and you know. What I've started realizing in promoting your talk is that even just saying ESG can be polarizing because people assume things that have nothing to do, for example, with what your talk's going to be about tonight. Right. And that to me was surprising. Um, just by saying ESG, people thought, well, you must be in favor of it. And I was like, no, we're trying to promote 
discourse around the topic to get a better understanding, because I think it's not well understood, and then how that does relate to individual investors, but then also from the firm's perspective, how it can alter their behavior, as you mentioned, maybe it lessens accountability or lessens the ability for them to do things that would ultimately help the environment. Um, so any other other points um, you want to kind of um, bring up? Actually, there, there are a couple. Um, one is it, some of our listeners, I'm sure, are saying, I can't keep all these ESGs and stakeholder things separate. They, they all seem fuzzy and run together. And that's right. They're fuzzy and they run together. <laughs> that's why you're having trouble following some of this. Because, and this is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I might say, well, I'm in favor of ESG. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I think that we should be very careful about um, – cutting off funding for things that are going to prevent people from doing research and development in certain areas. I think, you know, ExxonMobil is the number one company for reducing pollution in the United States because they know more about it than anybody else and they have the biggest or one of the biggest footprints and that's where a little teeny change, Mm. you know, so, and that's what I mean. I think we should do that. Uh, And you think I mean... I want you to sit in the dark and freeze yeah. and yeah. starve. You want to shut down ExxonMobil. Yeah, <laughs> right. and, and well, that's not what I meant. Right. We both said ESG, you know, and, <laughs> and so I think you're a loon and you think I'm a loon and we leave and we, neither of us have learned anything and there's probably some animosity when actually we're probably agreeing. Hmm. That's a great point. And, and we have to be very careful with slogans and nebulous concepts like this. And this is another issue. Stakeholders... Uh, people, you know, it's, it's, they say it's justice, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and well, how can you be against justice? Well, I'm not against justice. I'm in favor of justice. But, you know, you telling me how I can run my company when you, don't, you haven't put any skin in the game, mm-hmm. you know, that's not justice to me. You know, and so we're talking about different things. Right. Um, and getting upset about Important things when we both agree on what they are is probably not a good idea. Getting upset about things that we actually agree on is probably a really dumb idea. Well, that, that is uh, one of the things that we hope by bringing in speakers like you to campus and having the podcast is that we can create a space to have civil discourse And you're right that oftentimes people agree with each other more often than not. It's just they're not listening to each other or they're not they're not explaining their position in a way and being open minded to hear the other person to think, oh, we're actually wanting the same thing. We have the same goal. And now we're just kind of debating about the means to achieve that goal. And I think you're right that in this ESG stakeholder shareholder space that is oftentimes we're not really even boiling down to, okay, well, what are the different means of achieving these goals that for the most part, people want cleaner air. Um, you know, they would want a cleaner work environment or a safer work environment. But we live in a world of trade-offs, and that's something that as economists, mm-hmm. as a finance professor, we have to br- bring up and highlight is, okay, as you mentioned, we can pay workers more, but that means we're going to increase the price of our product, and that could then have a negative effect on the viability of our business. So just understanding, I think some of those constraints, those trade-offs, as you've been mentioning, that will be helpful in trying to navigate this area. 
I, I, I think uh, you might want to view this as good news and you might want to view this as bad <laughs> news. Um, but I think it, the message I'm trying to convey is uh, it's don't get all bent out of shape about what's going on with any particular issue. Because when it comes to the environment or carbon output, the United States is one of the cleanest countries on earth. Uh, China and India are building coal-fired power plants left and right, a couple every week, it seems. And uh, any one of those coal plants is going to put out more carbon than you would save with a fleet of electric vehicles mm. or anything else. Mm. So um, you can sit here and say, even if I'm 100% right and you're 100% wrong or the other way around, mm. it really isn't going to matter much until China and India get rich enough that they can afford to put in the scrubbers and things that they can't afford now and they can switch over to uh, cleaner sources of energy, whatever that happens to be. So uh, we're not going to make much difference. Mm. Let's not fight too much about it? I think that's a, a really good point. I'm glad you brought this up because one of the other things that I hear when environmental issues are brought up are the issues within developing countries such as you mentioned China, India that are um, have large populations and especially China where they have historically been growing at a rapid rate but there's still their level of income is significantly lower than ours. Per capita GDP yes, is much lower. Yes, is much lower. And so the way that we can absorb the additional cost is because we were on a path similar to what they're on now, right? Is, do you think that's an accurate description? I think that's exactly right. Okay. And so do you think it's, um, you know, some people push to not trade with these countries because of the way that they produce, that they're more environmentally unfriendly. And so I often... It, maybe it's sidestepping the question, but I often say, look, this was the path that we took to get to where we are. So it's somewhat hypocritical, I guess, to expect them to not also along their development path to use cheaper but dirtier technologies. Do you think mm -hmm. that's an accurate way of describing it? Or how would you, I guess, address somebody who would, would say, well, because they're you know, using coal, we shouldn't trade with them? Um, or is that just opening I, up? <laughs> I think that's beyond the scope of our discussion, but, but I think I want to get to what you said about developing countries, mm -hmm. and I'll tell a story that made a tremendous impact on me. Okay. Um, I was on hold once with tech support from some company decades ago, a couple decades, not, yeah, a couple decades <laughs> ago. Gee, time passes. And... Um, it was the guy was in India, okay, and we were on hold while he checked something, and so we started making small talk. And I mentioned that the uh, India had started building a new, super cheap car, hmm. okay. And the guy said, "Oh, I just got one. I just got one." <laughs> and and I said, "Is there is there any plan to import these cars? Because they were like twenty five hundred dollars. Wow. And then, granted, this was twenty years ago, but yeah. still, yeah." <laughs> Uh, and and he said, oh, no, they would never pass U.S. Oh. safety standards. Oh, wow. And I said, uh, yeah, you know, that's probably true. Does that bother you? Mm -hmm. And he said, until I got this car, my wife held our newborn 
on the back of my motorcycle hmm. while I rode around town. So no. So <laughs> I'm not too worried about whether this car is really good in crashes because whether, whether it is or not, it's way better than my wife holding our newborn on the back of my motorcycle while I rode around. Not everybody lives like the United States. That's a great story. That's a great example of what we call the nirvana fallacy, where you compare this an alternative to an ideal situation. And that's not the reality that we live in, and it's not the reality that people in other countries live in. Their relative alternative is not the U.S. And so that's a great story to illustrate that, to where maybe that car wouldn't pass U.S. safety standards, but it's much better than potentially walking on a rickshaw or on the back of a motorcycle. Right. With a newborn. With a newborn, yes. Okay, so let's take this concept with ESG and think about it in terms of an individual investor. So you mentioned this, I think, earlier, right at the beginning. and We've talked about it a little bit in terms of, um, let's say that you really do care about the environment or some of the other social issues. You've mentioned, you know, Black Lives Matter or you know, gender equality type issues. So how is it that you can use your money to invest in a way for things that you care about? Or what are some of the pitfalls that people need to think about to avoid? The first thing you need to think about is uh, are people doing what they say they're doing or are they just say they're doing mm, it? Okay. Okay, because it's, it's talk is cheap and companies will say they're doing whatever they need to say they're doing just like anybody else. Um, so, so be careful with that. The second uh, thing is understand that companies are very big and nobody's perfect. And okay. you, you aren't a hypocrite if you are, for the sake of argument, uh, Starbucks and you want to partner with people at Arizona State for training on anti-bias. And yet at the same time, your workforce is not exactly reflective mm. of American demographics. Mm -hmm. Look, you know. It, it, it just can't do everything. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah. And and you can't say we partnered with these people and then, but you didn't contribute to a, a school or you're you're pulling stores out of a crime-ridden area, which happens to be primarily minority, mm -hmm. which is what's been happening in San Francisco and right. places lately. Mm -hmm. um, you know, look, they can't protect the employees. They can't make any money running store if there's shoplifting and violence and you know, nobody wants to come in because it's not safe. Mm -hmm. So Starbucks can't do everything. They partner with Arizona for the anti-bias training. They're doing what they can. Whether or not you think that's helpful is another story. Okay. But you can't look at Starbucks and say, well, they, they aren't perfect. Okay. Yeah. You, you have to understand that nobody's perfect. Starbucks is about $110 billion before the last couple of weeks of stock price <laughs> decline. I'm not sure where we are now. Um, so you, you, you're not going to get something that's perfect. Um, okay. um, I believe they have also gotten criticized for using coffee from Brazilian plantations that have been accused of uh, using slave labor. Well, you know, that's not very nice, uh, but they are doing these other things. Well, is this a case of we say we're doing it, but we're not really, or is this a case of, well, we're doing what we can? It's very, very difficult. So my advice to the ESG investor would be to uh, be careful when you decide what you want to do, and um, the easiest 
thing to do mm-hmm. is to work locally. Okay. Uh, and, and here's 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 a scenario that I think makes a lot of sense, and it's the one that I do, and I hope that you agree with me that okay. it, it makes sense. Um, invest without ESG considerations. Hold a broadly hmm. diversified okay. portfolio of stocks and take your profits and donate them to something local. Uh, interesting. So, donate them to okay. a homeless shelter hmm. that you can drive by every day and, and see, see, I help those people. You can make a difference locally. You're not going to get ExxonMobil to stop drilling oil yeah. or refining okay. oil. It's, you're, just, you're not going to have any effect at all. So contribute to a homeless shelter or a battered women's shelter or an animal shelter or a church or something local. You're, you have a chance of doing real good mm. there, and you get to see a benefit. And you can also see if they're doing what they well, say and, they're doing. And that's a very good point. If they're not doing – if the homeless shelter yeah. is not doing what they're supposed to do – uh, give it to the to the Humane Society. Right. And if they're not doing else. what they do, give it to a church. And if the church isn't, give it somewhere else. You, it's much easier to monitor that. I think that is a very interesting and um, creative way of kind of addressing that you want to invest, you want to get return on your money, but then you also care about other people, whatever, however that manifests. If it's, you know, women or minorities or homeless people you care about other people and you want to try to make a difference and i think that you raised a very good um, point of saying do it locally and you can hold them accountable but also see Mm -hmm. the work in action and maybe even get involved and you use the word accountability Mm -hmm. you know if if the homeless shelter is misusing money um is it a mistake or is this a systematic Mm -hmm. con job that they're running if it's a systematic con job, you can probably get the person in charge of the homeless shelter replaced a lot more easily mm-hmm. than the chairman of Starbucks or ExxonMobil or McDonald's. Yeah, that is true. Okay, so for the last few minutes here, let's let's shift gears and let's just talk a little bit more about your, your work, um, your research. You've spent some time at the Fed. You've been at AIER. You've had a long career of working and researching in finance. So we can leave this a little bit more open-ended. We can talk about some um, ideas, research that you've been working on lately or your favorite paper that you ever wrote. Leave it. I'll leave it up to you. Wow. <laughs> when you're as old as I am, that covers a <laughs> lot of ground. Um, I, I'm i just going to start rambling. Okay, let's And go you with tell that. me to shut up <laughs> when you feel like it's time to shut up. Uh, I uh, have emeritus standard status from the University of Tennessee. I stepped down in June of 2022. So I'm a free agent now, and I'm spending my time doing things like this and uh, consulting and writing uh, little articles more for the popular press than for scholarly journals. Um, And I've enjoyed that. I'm putting together a piece on uh, for Audible on a skeptic's guide to investing. Interesting. Uh, The target audience is anybody who says... You know, it's a rigged game. You can't mm. win or anything like that. And I think I think you can. Just because okay. the game is stacked against you doesn't mean you can't do well. I mean, you couldn't beat Tiger Woods in his prime at golf, but a lot of people play golf and enjoy it. And you can't beat LeBron James in his prime, uh, but 
a lot of people play basketball and enjoy it and, and do pretty well with it. So, yeah, the experts are going to beat you out of a penny a trade maybe, but uh, I don't care. Okay. So th- I'll That's... be I'll be talking. It's it's six lectures. Okay. I'm not sure when it comes out. Um, we start recording pretty soon, but not it'll it'll be a while. That's exciting. Um, that's that it is exciting. I'm looking forward to that. That will be fun. Um, so listen to that what podcast. Absolutely, we can link when, to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> and when you're when you're jogging or cooking dinner or something, <laughs> do that. But again, I think we record in December or January, okay. so it, it'll be a while. Uh, I'm also writing something for the Liberty Fund on systemic racism. Uh, This is the second of a series. Um, My biggest uh, ally in this is uh, my former department head at the University of Tennessee named Harold Black, uh, who will be here tonight. And um, he has firsthand experience in a lot of these issues uh, as a minority faculty member and as a uh, researcher who has studied these particular areas. And and the bottom line seems to be that if there is any systemic racism, it's because of government policies that accidentally catch Mm. minorities in their uh, net, uh, something like rent control, for example, or which, you know, destroys housing stock or limiting uh, the schools that people can attend. And yeah, like limiting this. school choice. School choice is a serious issue. In the I had the community. pleasure of having Dr. Black on a podcast episode. So our listeners hopefully can either go back and listen to that or have listened to Harold tell his story and then also told us about his research. And, and so I'm glad mm. that you brought up Harold because uh, he will be attending tonight and He's been a supporter of the Probasco chair, and so Harold's a, a great ally. Yes. Um, so uh, we'll be doing that, and, and we, we did uh, a set of essays on systemic racism in uh, healthcare and systemic racism in schools. Mm-hmm. And this batch will be uh, for crime and uh, housing. Hmm. Does it exist or does it not? These are and very important topics. They are. Uh, and if it's a systemic problem, you come to a different set of, uh, let's call them attempts at solution. Mm-hmm. You know, there are no solutions, right. just trade-offs. Then you do if it's not a systemic problem. Okay. Um, I think the danger with saying something is systemic is it becomes an excuse to tear down everything. Yeah, that's right. And um, look around the world and tell me where you'd rather live. And I don't think you want to tear down everything here. So we'll see. But things can improve. Absolutely. So it's always right. Improvements at the margin. Well, (laughs) I tell a story um, about a time I lived in a very backward country. Okay. Um, It was uh, very poor. There were uh, a few houses had showers. Mine didn't. Uh, nobody had air conditioning. Um, fruits and vegetables were seasonal. Mm. There was a bonanza in the fall and sp- uh, late summer, mm. but you just had canned goods after that. Uh, cars were rusting and spewing lead into the air, and it was it was really quite backward. Um, that was the United States in 1965, <laughs> and it's nothing like that now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. yes, we are making progress. It's mm-hmm. it's not revolutionary, but over a period of time, it's not the same. The the poorest decile of people 
lived better than the middle class did back then. Absolutely. And we can even extend that further back in history of would you want to be the wealthiest person 100 years ago or, you know, lower income class today? And most people, when you would look at the standard of living, how you actually had to live back 100 years ago, people would pick to live today for the exact point you're making. Go back 300 years and say, um, how would you get from where you are now to San Francisco or Tokyo. Well, you couldn't, couldn't do, it, do it. You know, you just yeah. couldn't do it. I don't care how rich you are, how much power you have. It's just you can't. Uh, and if you have uh, breast cancer or something like that, uh, well, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And now you have a fighting chance. Uh, simple infections used to kill infant mortality. You probably know the numbers better than I do. Yeah. So uh, things are way better. I think we have to be very careful we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. I I would agree that um, with that point, and then perhaps maybe this is as I've gotten older, but it's one of these things where we forget where we've come from and that we are on a path of progress and what determines or what are some of the things that go into kind of those continual improvements or you know, just the big development question of why are some nations rich and some are poor? So understanding the wealth creating process. Mm-hmm. I often tell my students that um, people usually ask me or my students will ask me, what causes poverty? And I say, that's the wrong question. It's what causes wealth. Yes. So why did we ever emerge out of poverty? That's the interesting and hard question to figure out. Now, the literature's advanced, you know, quite a bit in, in offering kind of general conclusions to that. Property rights, the ability to trade, for example. Rule of law. Rule of law, absolutely. And so those are kind of the big pillars. But then, you know, the specifics within it can get a little complicated. But I think, again, it's one of those when you haven't recognized the path and that the path is is improving, then you can kind of get lost in the weeds. And as you mentioned, kind of want to throw everything out and say, oh, everything's doomed. And it's like, actually, most things over a long period of time, are getting better. Would you say that's fair? I would definitely say that's fair. Okay. Um, Any last-minute remarks before we wrap up? Well, people can find me uh, by Googling my name, R-A-M-O-N-D-E-G-E-N-N-A-R-O, D-E-G-E-N-N-A-R-O, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. Uh, Let me know. Thank you, Ray. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you visiting UTC and we look forward to your talk tonight. This has been the Probasco podcast. Thank you again. Pleasure.